Welcome to another episode of A Modern Man Podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Farrell, and, it, and it's been a little absent. I'm sorry. I did not mean to forsake you and be so long. It's just I've just been busy, busy with school. We've been doing some things, you know, almost done with the second semester of grad school now. And podcast is shifting. I'm, I'm going to, to put more content out there to focus on what I've been focusing on. I'm making more school focus, more psychology focus, and that's what the whole goal is that's what the future of the podcast is so we're just gonna we're gonna whip it around with that's what we're gonna make it about so as my long-awaited apps i'm not gonna have uh no um what's it uh not eulogy i can't even talk right now uh yeah the intro whatever we're cutting the intro and we're something right in i'm gonna just give you a background i had to read for this semester project uh between the world and me by Tanahashi Coates and great book. Uh, didn't didn't never heard of him. Didn't know anything about him, and that's what I was assigned. Our professor said he was picking a book individually for each person, and I seriously feel like I got the perfect book. I, I I'm about to pretty much what we have to do. We're gonna give you a little background about the book, a small little kind of talk about the central themes. And then we're kind of conceptualizing the paper. As you know, I am in grad school for counseling psychology. And so we're using a theory and kind of going through the clients to stress why they might be in our office. It seems like it's a little fun, but it's definitely not. No, it's a little tricky. You don't want to, you don't want to do, don't do the client justice because they're phenomenal writers. Like some people got Malcolm X and Nelson Mandela. Sorry for them. Tanahashi Coates is hopefully one of the futures of our generations. And maybe he gave me him because hopefully like I can try and reach out to him or something. I don't know. But I did. I loved him. So for the first episode of this podcast for the first time and I don't know, what's it been? It's been like two months since we've been away. I'm going to kind of do my presentation. What I have to do seriously uh, in class. You know, I'm literally, as you're listening to this podcast, I have done my presentation and so i'm gonna give it to you i'm gonna let's see how it goes it's supposed to be under 30 minutes i was making fun of some other people for going longer and like on my practice run i definitely went a little longer but i'm doing it for the listeners i'm doing it for the modernites so here we go my name is jd farrell and i was assigned between the world and me by tanahashi Coates. and this book is a complex book. It was Tanahashi. He wrote it towards his son. His son was about 15 at the time. That's his son, Samari, if you can see on the slides. And, yeah, I, I can't do the justice talking about kind of why he wrote this book, the central kind of point of the book. So I have a video. I'm going to give it away to him. And let, let's listen to this video, and that will give you a background of kind of what we're getting into. It is impossible to imagine America without black people, and thus it's impossible to imagine America without a black narrative. My name is Ta-Nehisi Coates. I'm the author of Between the World and Me. It's a very intimate work that's written, addressed to my son. Really, this is a work that is, at least from my perspective, I was certainly attempting to root it in history. America is rather singular. The country that claimed to be premised on freedom actually was only able to fulfill that promise for a portion of its population and did it by brutalizing and enslaving another portion. 
And so all of American art is, is haunted in a particular way. My inspiration would be a very long list. But if we just kept it at Howard, I was there when I could read a Mary Baraka for the first time in my life. You know, very early in my writerly career, 19, 20 years old, I'm hearing somebody who's writing how black people talk. It's one thing to actually read somebody's work, but then to read them at the university where they actually attended. And to have, for instance, Ossie Davis on campus right there, addressing the students, talking about his time at Howard. It was a beautiful thing. It was a tremendous thing. And what I was trying to do in the book was just give some idea of what that meant and what it was. Son, I remember walking down to the tailgate party. I saw the entire diaspora around me. Hustlers, lawyers, cappers, busters, doctors, barbers, deltas, drunkards, geeks, and nerds. And I felt myself disappearing into all of their bodies. I always felt that I was part of a, a continuum of struggle. And in my sense, that world was in, in literature and among writers. I don't think I would be here talking right now uh, with, without the support of, of Toni Morrison, who went to Howard and, and very much endorsed uh, Between the World to Me as a book. And so I think it's very important to be supportive of, of younger writers. The most important thing is to not stop, because you're at the beginning of your career. You have barely become what you ultimately will become. Um, as somebody that published Between the World and Me when I was almost 40 years old, at that point, I, you know, I had you know, been basically writing professionally for almost 20 years. You, you really have to get into the practice and the craft of it, and it's really important that you keep going. Those that you know, win in the long term are the ones that just refuse to stop. Dear son. Son to my daughter. Dear brothers. I would not have you descend into your own dream. I would have you be a conscious citizen of this terrible and beautiful world. So yeah, hopefully that gives you a little background about why he wrote the book, kind of why he wanted to put that out there. And it's just his story is talking about the black world and it's his world and he's giving you a little insight of his and if you're black you understand it and you're just seeing it from his perspective but as an outsider you're definitely seeing what it's like to kind of see a little bit of the black world in america and i'm gonna go through now a couple of the central themes we got a few of the central themes and most of the central themes i put are like direct quotes or things he said or wrote in the book and the first thing we're going to start about is the people versus the body. And he uses the body a lot throughout this book, constantly referencing the body and just how we as black people in America don't have control over our bodies and how the things that were done for us to lose control over our body and the things we're constantly doing to this day to try and feel like we are in control of our bodies. And he talks about to make someone a slave, to put them in that position, imagine the rape, the torture, the things you have to do to the body to make get them there. And just picture that. And then he relates the body to the people. And we're not included in the people. Black people are not included in the people. And he wants to also say that these people were not always black. The people were something else. But that's the thing. Then they became uh, black people. And to this day, since colonization, since everything else, now they're considered black people. They're Catholic. They're Jews. They're gypsies. 
You know, all these people, they were some marginalized people were black people before black people. We're just now black people. And and we the people and all these constitution, all these laws, the people were never including black people. They weren't including women at the time too, but now they're not including black people. They don't include the darkness. And they do this, they separate, so it's still a way for them to oppress the body. And then moving on to oppressing the body, let's, let's talk about race. And just, I'm going to read this real quick, and then I'm going to read it again. I want you to close your eyes a second time. But race is the child of racism, not the father. All right. Now this time, close your eyes. Race is not, race is the child of racism, not the father. They can't, racism happened and then racist begun from that. We think that people were divided up by races and then there was some type of hierarchy came after that. No, there, there was never any sense of race. Once colonization brought that and dropped that into the world, then there was a hierarchy on the darkness of your skin. So it it's not like that. This doesn't have to be this way. This is a choice. Is what he's saying by that. And then a really a really big central theme uh, throughout the book: black people act out of fear. Carrying a gun out of fear, you know, wearing extremely baggy clothes out of fear, wearing a certain uh, way you walk, the way you talk a certain way. It's sometimes it's a survival instinct. He would talk about in West Baltimore, his friends, every all these people around him, they, they were afraid. They were constantly afraid. He said as a father, he's afraid every time his son steps out of the door. His dad was afraid. They said that parents would beat them so much because they were afraid that, hey, if you're going to beat my kid, I'd rather beat him. Another big theme we have throughout this book is they lie to us about history and it hurts us. This reminds me of critical race theory. Critical race theory talks about how People think it's some big, it, of course, the way it sounds, oh, it has to come out so like articulate and academic. But all it is, is let, let's, let's honestly, let's talk about our real history, okay? Let's talk about what really went down. And yeah, some people did some bad things, some people did some good things. But it's history. We're just laying the facts out out there. But lying about it, acting like, oh, we haven't been... We were enslaved. We weren't enslaved longer than we've been free. Acting like that isn't real, that hurts us. That creates cognitive dissonance because because you're literally lying to our face. You're acting like oh, what we're feeling is wrong. When people are like oh, let's act like racist. Oh, I don't see color. No, you're see you're acting like this is wrong and this is or this is not real. What we're feeling, you're not validating our feelings. Our feelings are real. And there's evidence all around you. So we don't even need to hear this and scream from a rooftop about how there is a hierarchy to colorism. 
and that not making people aware of it and who yes it might make you a little offended that it's shoved in your face but it is history all right we all have privilege and we all have to own that so all right get ready for an activity i got one more theme and in part of that theme we're going to do an activity and this is another quote he has and uh it's when he has a interaction with uh white woman in upper Manhattan when he's looking at daycares and he says black boys and black girls are told to be twice as good which is to say except half as much like little white children I imagine telling them to take twice as much just think about that and I was always told this and everything everything I did Think about, think about this with the cops and the cops. You have to be twice as good. No, you can't talk back. You can't do these things just to accept for bare minimum to live. You know, that's why white people have that entitlement to have twice as much. Why am I in this situation? They question it. You know, they get twice as much. All right. And jobs, same thing. Oh no, you have to be perfect. You know, you gotta, your resume has to be spotless. You know, you got to be twice as good just to get in there. Twice as good. You know, your parents, they say, oh, you're going to be running this shit. Fuck this. You know, double the salary. Go in there and say, oh, no, I want to raise the second you go in there. It's just different mindset. Grilling at the park of the family. These are bare minimum things. Bare minimum things. All right. We, We have to be on our best behavior. We can't be too loud, you know. We can't make someone feel uncomfortable. We can't laugh and dance with our family. Oh, bring a little alcohol without a permit. But, oh, oh, no. Have you ever been to any park? In, have been to Prospect Park? Been to Central Park in New York? How many people bring alcohol on drinking? Yeah. We have to do, be twice as good and accept half as much. All right. So right there, I would be in the class. I'm going to do this little activity. I'm going to tie some people's hands up. I'm going to blindfold some people. And I'm going to make them um, well, hop on one leg. And they're all going to like have to fist bump it. Fist bump me. Very, very basic level thing we all like to do. Or come sit in a chair. I might have them come sit in a chair. Because something simple, satisfying, you know, everyone wants to sit down. And they're not going to be able to do it. Yeah, I just changed it from fist, fist bump to sit in a chair. So it's just going to be, uh, they have to come sit in a chair. And, yeah. So it's going to be a little activity showing that we have to work twice as hard to accept and pretty much accept half as much. And then for black women, they have to do more. And for gay black women and for gay black trans women of color, oh, we can go all down the list. Yeah. Then I'm going to go to an activity. I want to talk a bit a little about the major life events that Tanahashi went through that kind of would affect his mental health. And those things are going to start with um, him just growing up in West Baltimore. West Baltimore is a very, very tough area. And he talked about the crime with it, how he saw constantly... Uh, it was survival just on the streets. 
His dad beat him from the age of six years old. He got beat for anything and everything. And again, like I said, if you're going to die on the streets, your parents say, yeah, I got the right to beat you if they're going to beat you. He had a situation where he had his first gun put on him at 11 years old. His life flashed before his eyes, and he didn't tell anyone. 11 years old. And in that same situation, his dad beat him a month later for not getting robbed. Or for getting robbed. So he got beat for being too soft. And then he almost died for being too hard. So, yeah. It is a, it's, it's a fine line plan where he grew up. And then, like I said, he was not that big into school. He wasn't big into the institutions. He felt like the school tried to teach him compliance when he was interested in creativity. And the, the interesting about that, about teaching compliance, is that he said 60% of black men that drop out of high school end up in jail. So the institution that's teaching compliance, instead of trying to a system that's trying to uplift and find out, all right, how can we help these people? That's what, you know, the education system should be. But instead, we are creating kind of a, just a, a cycle where, all right, they can't fit into this system. We're going to put them into this institution. And that does nothing. And then from there, he worked his way, even though he was not big in the education system into Howard. He went to Howard uh, and that's where he just learned all about the beautiful blackness. Howard was still an institution that he did not quite agree with, but the Mecca is what he fell in love with. And by the Mecca, this is the Mecca. All these people, all these wonderful, beautiful black people that went to the Mecca, the knowledge he got from the Mecca, the alumni from the Mecca, the experiences uh, and relationships he learned from the Mecca. That was that was everything to him. And Howard is when he first began to write. He had his first interactions with white people, which just growing up in West Baltimore, that was big for him. And Things like having his own room for the first time, starting to actually date for the first time. And so that Howard was big transformative time for him and his life and his growth. And then he had a big traumatic event. Prince Jones, one of his best friends, kind of product of success and black excellence, was assassinated by the police. Killed by the police, murdered by the police. How 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 do we want to phrase this? Uh, it was it was completely unjust. It was there was no cause, um, and the officer got off. So, and, and that's definitely causing him a lot of distress. And he talks about it in a lot of his work. Around this same time, he became a father, lost his best friend, dropped out of college, became a father. And. We know what his father was to him. He is a very intelligent man and is aware of the black man in society and aware of the black uh, man's role in society. And so becoming a father is going to be a huge, huge responsibility to him. And on top of that, becoming a huge responsibility for him, 
he just it's it creates that fear that fear he had and yeah just because fear for his child afraid that now he has to worry about his child's life he was afraid just afraid for his own now he's to be afraid of his for his child and then shortly after his child was born they moved to harlem moved to new york city and yeah people moved you know why is this a big deal this is no big deal yeah he thought he was gonna live in baltimore almost his entire life but then he moved to new york city two months before 9-11 and definitely want to talk to him about his struggles there uh dealing with that if he still has any uh feelings about 9-11 and especially because he didn't he didn't have a lot of sympathy for the uh firefighters and first responders he said if y'all are here killing me in these streets you know y'all can go out there and die in those and so i just want to Kind of talk to him about that compassionate empathy. And then when he finally, almost 30 years old, got to go to France, big big time for him. He, I, I remember him talking about being in like second grade French class, learning French, and he's just like, why the hell am I learning French? Like, I'm never going to meet a French person. Then finally going there, he, he finally saw himself as a black person, like, not as a black American person, not a person, like, tied to the struggle, tied to a storyline. He he got to just live and talk about this freedom. He's been searching for this freedom. And because he's always been afraid. And it took finally leaving America to not be afraid. And that was a huge set for him. And... Still, how I said Prince Jones. Prince Jones was on his mind constantly. It was a big thing for him. And he decided to go see Dr. Mabel Jones, which is Prince Jones' mom. And I think just as a father and wanting her advice, he wanted to know how she's able to continue living on knowing, not knowing, but just like with the death of her son. And he went to talk to her and, yeah, just comfort her and kind of feel where hers at, her at. Her head's out with the death of her son, and I think that's something to touch on because, I mean, to still be pondering kind of how you would be feeling as a parent of your child's death. That's like he's constantly pondering about his child's death. But, all right, Tanahashi, we have an appointment set. He wrote down some of the presenting problems. He's a 46-year-old black man. We know he's an established, best-selling author, married father of one. He's definitely suffering distress because he's very aware and he sees inequality all around him, not just within his own community, but in his community and all the other communities. And he is fighting this patriarchy. So he is constantly, he's experiencing stress from fighting against a system that doesn't even want to support him. So even as he does make strides, those strides, it's like, you know, you take one step forward, two steps back. But I feel like feminist theory is a good way to go with Tanahashi. We're going to use the ego. We got to start by having a great egalitarian relationship with him. Uh, has to be collaborative. Very collaborative. He's an intelligent, smart person. 
And if I come out here acting like I am holier than thou on a higher platform than him, yeah, there is no way it's going to work out. So I'm really going to come meet him where he is, understand that, hey, we're going to make this plan together. We're going to work together. I'm just here to facilitate whatever you need done. Just let me know. And then I'm really going to stress to him. He knows, he knows, he knows about the patriarchy, but stress to him about his distress is coming from the patriarchy and let him know if he's probably read some of the bell hooks, but I want to let him know that where it came from, where it came from. Like we were institutionally learned the patriarchy through slavery, through doing feminist jobs and male and female quote unquote jobs working in the fields versus working in the house. That is how we were socialized into the patriarchy. You know, seeing women wear dresses and men wear trousers. That was never a problem before, but then we were socialized now into the patriarchy. Right. I really want to... He, he knows systematic change is needed, but it's about stressing the importance to him that 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 is really the source of his discomfort. Once Once we get real change then we'll start to see change in his treatment and he's fighting that and he's on that so we're just going to constantly work on that and make sure he's at peace with that and again just like the egalitarian relationship it's going to be an equal power dynamic very collaborative equal i want to let him know that again i am not on a pedestal all right i am the goal of this treatment is for me to grow just as much as him I don't know any more than him than he knows. And that's kind of one of be the basics and the building blocks of our treatment. And working together, we know we're going to have to come up with a some way to bill for insurance. And I, collaboratively, I believe we would come together with generalized anxiety. I th- believe he would meet at least three of the possible symptoms, according to the DSM-5, that would dictate four having uh, generalized anxiety with the muscle tension, trouble, sleeping, fatigue. These things are causing him significant distress. The inequality, the uh, patriarchy is constantly tearing him down. So that would be what we'd be working on in our sessions. And together, working on this treatment, we'd have weekly to monthly sessions, depending on him. Again, the client is the leader in this relationship. I would want to know whatever he wants best. If he needs my opinion, then I think we'll do monthly sessions. I think he's very uh, educated, very at peace. We just need to constantly make sure he is working on the things that he wants to work on. And in our sessions, kind of the big things I want to focus on are relational resilience and relational images. These are the main things I think that would help in his treatment. And as we said, relational resilience, this is when you're able to move back into relationships after the disconnection and pathetic failures and still ask for help and kind of recuperate, you know, after having obviously bad relationships, getting back in and this relationship resilience is exudes starting with his childhood. We talked about his father constantly beating him, constantly giving him no empathy, saying the streets are going to beat you. I'm going to beat you. But he kept coming back to his father. He kept listening to his father. He kept getting books and reading from his father. He kept relational. No one in the school, he felt like he didn't have a safety net at the school or the streets. 
He never felt at home with any of those. Yet he was still able to survive. He was still able to make connections. Then finally, when he went off to college and he was able to date, he had failed relationships. He tried and had failed relationships. But in that same time, he was able to meet the love of his life and his future wife and spouse and mother of his child. So I want to emphasize to him this relational resilience that he is able to completely still have good relationships despite these obstacles, despite the failures that he's had in his life. The next thing we'll be working on in his sessions is the relational images. I talked a lot, uh, mainly about his father beating him out of fear. It's fear. The fear is the big word. He had a gun pulled on him. All right. The major, major things that we need to work on is that black people are constantly living in fear. A lot of the images he has a lot of his neighborhood. Everything is about black people constantly living in fear. Well, we know kind of where it comes from, but I just want to know why can't, and then he feels he can't be free. He described Michael Max. He read so much Malcolm X growing up. And he said, Mike, Michael Max was free. He was the only man I ever know to actually be free. Why? Why can't you be free? If this man was free, then why? Why can't you be free? And does he look down on black people because they're f- afraid? That's what I really want to know. These these images. Does he does he like his people and he's going to fight for his people, but at the same time he looks down on them? So I want to address that and work through those things and kind of see where he's at with those. And I want to end with, again, everything Tanahashi said throughout this book was beautiful. So we're going to end on this quote. To claim black-on-black crime is to shoot a man and blame him for bleeding. I can't say anything else to that. Tanahashi Coates, baby. Tanahashi Coates, ah! That's it, baby. To claim black-on-black crime is to shoot a man and blame him for bleeding. Oh, we ending it right there. We ending it right there. This is That's a wrap, baby. That's a wrap. This is a Modern Man Podcast. All right. I'm J.D. Farrell. I'm see y'all next week, okay? Deuces.